Good morning. Peace be with you. As I was introduced, my name is Cole Kirby, and I serve at Sojourn Houston as a church planting resident, uh, particularly at Sojourn Montrose. Uh, it is a, a joy and an honor to be with y'all this morning, to be able to proclaim the truth from God's Word. Um, uh, before we get started, as the text revealed, uh, we will be talking uh, largely about sexual immorality this morning, uh, and so uh, parental advisory uh, is given, so, so we will be using language in regards to that topic, and so if you have a young child that you don't think that's appropriate, um, that, is, that is your warning right now. Uh, before we get going, let me pray for us. Father, we love you, and we praise you, and we ask that by your Spirit, you would reveal to us the truth from your word this morning, that by the power of your Spirit, you would convict us of sin, not that we would be ashamed or overwhelmed by guilt, but that we would run to you in repentance. Pray that you'd be graceful to us this morning. I pray that by your word and by your spirit that you would afflict the comfortable in this room and comfort the afflicted with the power of your gospel. I ask that you would use my mouth for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So over the past few weeks, as we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, the, the past couple of chapters, Paul has continually been calling the Corinthian church to keep from drifting away from the gospel that they have believed. And so this drifting can take place in all sorts of, of different ways, different areas of the Christian life can lead to drifting away from the gospel. And this morning, in particular, we will look at a text where Paul calls the Corinthian church not to drift into sexual immorality. Hear the word of the Lord in the first two verses of today's text, verses 12 and 13. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so Paul opens up this section of the text by pointing to the attitude that the Corinthians have had. See, the Corinthian Christians had taken the gospel of grace and their newfound freedom and liberty, and they had abused it. If grace abounds in sin, the Corinthians thought, then I can do anything that I want. And the Corinthian culture was one that normalized sexual immorality. It was one that said, if you have an itch, scratch it. If you have a hunger, find something to eat. And if you have sexual desires, hire a prostitute or find an outlet for those desires. And the Corinthians were behaving much more like their city than they were like their God in regards to sex. Just like Corinth, we live in a city and in a culture that normalizes sexual immorality. 
And although we as American Christians may not boast in our participation in it, studies would show that although we are the first group of people to speak out against sexual immorality, Christians in America, the first group of people to speak out against homosexual marriage or the dangers of pornography or cohabitation outside of marriage, studies would show that silently and secretly we indulge our desires just like the rest of our country and our city. I think this is most particularly evident in the dangerous area of internet pornography. Here are some alarming statistics. A 2014 study showed that 67% of U.S. men from the ages of 18 to 40 had watched internet pornography within the last month. That's two-thirds of our population. 28% of women admitted that they had done so at least three times in the past year. And when I looked deeper at the numbers, what I found is that the numbers for those who claim to be Christians and those who claim to not be Christians were not very different. And so as we sit here this morning, some of us are probably beginning to feel uncomfortable because we know that we're among that group or we know that there's some other way in which we regularly indulge in a practice that outwardly we would say is wrong. But some of us in the room look at the Christian sex ethic and say that it's archaic and repressive, that the Bible's teachings on sex are intolerant at best and foolish at worst. But for many of us in the room, we know and believe in our hearts that the Bible's teaching on sex is right and good yet we walk in opposition to those teachings. I know this because I'm one of these people. Over the last 10 or so years in my life, I've slowly and slowly found more and more freedom from these things, but failure has been part of my life in regards to sexual immorality. So this sermon this morning is not just for you who are already beginning to feel the guilt and shame of your actions, but it's for me as well. And so whether you are in the mires of a sexual addiction or you think that the way Christians view sex is altogether foolish, this is an issue of interest for everyone. And so I'm going to ask that we lean in, that we see what God's Word might have to say about this. And to do so, we first need to establish what the Bible says about sexual immorality or or what the Bible says about sex in general. Quickly and simply put, sex was created by God for the people of God to to enjoy within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And, And many of you have long thought that because of the exclusive nature through which sex is supposed to be enjoyed for Christians, that Christians and the Bible and even the Christian God have a low view of sex. If sex is only for married men and women, 
then Christians must not value it at all. They must not understand its power. They must not understand how enjoyable it is. But I would argue that Christians do not have a low view of sex. In fact, the Christian Bible and the Christian worldview probably promotes the highest view of human sexuality in the history of the world. Because sex in the Bible and sex for the Christian exists for joy and for union. It exists for worship of God. It exists to physically, spiritually, and emotionally unite two people in a lifelong covenant relationship. It exists as a seal and consummation of a covenant. And so for those of us who are tempted to reject this worldview... And for those of us who would assent to its boundaries and say that they're good, yet we walk outside of them, we must understand that humans and even Christians largely underestimate the power and purpose of sex. Hear what Paul says in verses 13 through 18 in chapter 6. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise also and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So sexual sin is misuse of the body. Paul tells us this, and he tells it because in sex, we are united to others in a powerful way. Addressing the solicitation of prostitutes in the Corinthian church as as kind of a regular habit of the Corinthian Christians, Paul tells them that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. And then he quotes the account of the first marriage between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when he says, the two will become one flesh. This is really powerful language. Because what Paul is saying is that in sexual relationship, we confirm and strengthen a covenantal bond to one another. We move from being two individuals to being one united body emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And within the context of marriage, this is a grace. It's a grace as a husband and wife are able to revisit and reestablish and reconfirm their union to one another through the physical act of sex. In this, they confirm their vows to one another to be family, to submit to each other in all things, to be vulnerable and connected to each other in worship and in Christian living. And their bodies being united serves the purpose of tying them deeply together emotionally, physically, and spiritually. 
Yet because it is such a powerful thing, use of sex outside of the bounds that God has created it for is deeply dangerous because what we end up doing is writing checks that we aren't able or willing to cash as we become emotionally, spiritually, and physically united to people that we aren't ready to really be committed to. This is why in a dating relationship that sex has entered into, breaking up becomes even more difficult. It's why addictions develop to pornography and masturbation. It's why we continually tell our bodies, our brains, and our hearts, and our spirits that the objects of our lust are things that we are actually committed to in a marriage covenant type of way. And it's damaging and painful to try to live lives of independence from the things that we've so deeply committed ourselves to. We have vastly underestimated the power and purpose of sex. Verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. See, Paul knows that the Corinthians have underestimated the power and purpose of sex, and so this is his imperative call to the church. Writing from hundreds of miles away after hearing that the Corinthians have drifted into behaving sexually just like the city that they live in, rather than in the ways that God has created them to live, he knows that they are getting owned by their desires. He knows that they are destined for destruction. He knows that they're setting themselves up for depression and anxiety and guilt and shame and fear and sadness. And so while we read flee from sexual immorality, the tone with which Paul is writing is more like flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. It will kill you. Paul doesn't tell them to struggle with this sin. He doesn't tell them to sit and consider all of the intellectual reasons that they should behave one way rather than another. He doesn't even tell them that they shouldn't enjoy this sin. He tells them to run for their lives. So sojourners, Look at the lust in your heart. Look at your browser history and your relationships in any other way that you might have been caught in a web of misusing your body and your mind and your heart in regards to God's gift of sex and run. Run from it. But if you're like me, you, you can hear that and say, I know that that's right. I know I should run. But Cole, if it were that easy, don't you think I would have? If it were just as easy as running, don't you think I, I would be free from this addiction? Don't you think that I would be free from this relationship? Don't you think that I would have some sort of freedom and joy and obedience? You might be thinking, Cole, I want to walk in purity, but I just can't seem to. I just can't seem to, to get a grip on this. You see, church, we're a lot like rats who love cheese. Yet for many of us, the only cheese available is the one that is the bait to the trap. 
See, rats love cheese so much that they can smell it from a long way away, and they'll go through walls and under floorboards, and they'll go under doorways to get in the room where the cheese is. And imagine this rat after finding this cheese, looking at it, sitting in a trap, and knowing, if I go after that, it's going to break my leg. But the smell is intoxicating. My appetite's overwhelming, but if I go after that, it's going to break my leg. Yet in that moment that we fail, we go and we choose to have a broken leg just for a taste of the cheese. And so many of us are limping around out of the kitchen with a trap attached to our snapped leg. And Paul knows that really what is best for that rat and for us is not to enter into the room where the cheese is, but move to a different house altogether. Flee from it. I find it particularly interesting in this text that sexual sin is described as somehow different than other sins. Paul says that that it's a sin against our own body. And when I first read that, I didn't really understand the power of it, and it's because I have a very low view of the body in comparison to God. See, see, Paul is saying that when we unite our bodies to others in sexual immorality, either physically or mentally or visually, we enter into a marriage commitment that we aren't ready to keep. But I think the meaning is even deeper than that. I'm convinced that God has a much higher view of the body than we do, just like he has a higher view of sex than we do. See, often we view our body as simply a physical tool through which we get to express our true sense of self. Often we despise our own bodies as we see it getting older and sick and gray and wrinkled. But in God's view, the body is deeply important, and we are connected to our body in very powerful ways. We know that God cares deeply for the body and that he has a high view of it, and that he formed the first human body with his hands as he picked up dirt and made Adam in the garden. And then he took his hands and he opened up Adam's body and took out a rib and used that to form for Adam a bride. We know that God values the body deeply because the psalmist writes that God knits us together in our mother's wombs, intimately and purposefully and personally. Our bodies are not only the creation of God, but they are a unique and intimate and personal expression of God's glory. God has made us with bodies to use our bodies for his glory, as we see Paul writing in verse 13. Yet we sit in a room with defiled bodies, having sinned against them with sexual immorality. Our bodies are now dirty and shameful, having participated in unmentionable acts. Not only do we have a low view of sex, but a low view of body. But God loves and values the body so much that he looked upon our dirty, sinful bodies destined for death and eternal suffering, and he decided to enter into one. 
See, in the person of Jesus, we see God treasuring and honoring himself with a human body. Though we've sinned against our physical bodies with sexual failure, Jesus honored the physical body through purity and obedience and worship. Though our bodies are destined for death, Jesus took upon his body the death that we deserve that our sins might be forgiven. Though our bodies continually wander back to the trap of sexual desire, Jesus' body was resurrected in victory over Satan's sin, death, and desire. Though our bodies are weak and sickly, Jesus' body is glorified in heaven right now as he sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling and interceding on our behalf in a human physical body. This is why the language of verse 11 from last week becomes so powerful when Paul writes, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit of our God. Or consider verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus wore a body to the point of death so that we might have new bodies, church. And we often think of this in future terms, awaiting the heavenly body after death when we get a a body of glory in the resurrection, but we can think of it in present terms as well. The language of being washed in verse 11 should remind us of our baptism. When we put on the body of Christ's death to put off the body of our death, and we put on the body of Christ's resurrected glory to put away our body of shame and of guilt. In our physical baptism, we appeal to the bodily death and resurrection of Christ so that we might have redeemed bodies, not just in the future, but now. Every week, we come to the communion table And in so doing, we cling to and are united to Christ's body and blood to nourish not only our soul and our spirit, but our body as well as we partake in physical food and drink. Christian, though you have defiled your body in sexual misconduct, God looked upon your body of sin. He looked upon your heart of darkness and decided to buy it and make it his home. Your body is no longer a room with the blinds drawn, but it's a brilliant and magnificent temple of God meant to emanate the glory and grace and love of God. You were bought with a price, Christian. God didn't begrudgingly take you. He didn't receive you in a bad trade. He looked upon your body in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your failure, in the midst of your constantly wandering back to the things that you desired, and he said, I want that one. So much that I'll die for it. I want to make that one my home. I want to make that one my child. Christian, he desired to have you for himself, and he knew well your sin, both in the past and in the present and in the future. 
Yet we're told in this text that not only were we bought with, our, with a price, the price of Jesus' body, but that our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. I think this is something that if we grew up in the church, we've heard often. Your body is a temple, we were told, and it may have been a reason that we were told to eat our vegetables or to exercise or any number of other things, but what does it really mean that our body is a temple of God? Well, to understand it, we have to understand the physical temple for Israel. And so for those who may be less familiar, before the time of Jesus, God primarily revealed himself and his glory and his love to the people of Israel. And in Jerusalem, there was a physical temple built. And in the center of this temple, there was a room called the most holy place, and the presence of God dwelt there. Once a year, a high priest would enter into the most holy place on behalf of the people. And and God's glory was there to the extent that they would tie a rope around the priest so that if he was presented before God in this place and died, that they would be able to pull him out. At the temple, the people of Israel would come and make sacrifices for their sin. They would make offerings and worship to God. They would make prayers to God. But God always meant for that temple to point toward what he would eventually accomplish in his son Jesus. The presence of God was fully revealed in the body and person of Jesus. Jesus' body became the final and perfect sacrifice as he truly experienced the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Jesus' body was the place of ultimate offering and worship through his obedience, through his ministry. And even now, his body is the ultimate place where prayers are supplicated as he sits at the right hand of the Father, constantly praying for his people. Yet what Paul is telling us is that that it's not just in the temple that God has dwelt, and it's not just in the person of Jesus that God has dwelt, but for those who have trusted in Christ through faith that he has put his Holy Spirit, the fullness of his presence, in the physical body of Christians. Our bodies being the temple of God means that it is in and through our bodies that we can marvel in the sacrifice of Jesus and offer our own bodies and our own contrition and repentance as an offering to God and worship. It means that our bodies are now the place from which prayers go up to the Father as a pleasing aroma in the heavens, perfected by the Son as He prays for us. It means that our bodies are now the place where the ministry of God's grace takes place, And so earlier in the text, Paul told us that our bodies were not meant for sexual immorality. Our bodies are meant for glorifying God. And we glorify him through understanding that our bodies are truly temples of God if we're in Christ through faith. The Holy Spirit residing within us is something many of us have probably talked about. We've talked about having the Holy Spirit. Yet, for if you're like me, you've not quite known what that means. It, it feels sort of like a nebulous sort of way in which we're somehow mystically connected to God. 
But when Paul tells us that our bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit, he means that in the physical bodies of Christians, within your flesh and your bones, the fullness and presence of God dwells. Our bodies have been redeemed from sin and now are meant to pour out and to show the love and grace and mercy and majesty and character of God to all whom we encounter. Our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality. They're meant for temple worship. And only through using our bodies for temple worship can we truly flee from sexual sin. Only when we begin offering our bodies as sacrifices to God and to his kingdom for his glory can we be free from our desires. Only when we recognize and rejoice in the fact that God has gracefully decided to take up residence within our bodies and that we can have the fullness of God's power to access in moments of temptation, only then will we be free from lust or addiction. Only when we realize that apart from God dwelling within our bodies, we're weak and frail and helpless. And realize that the powerful God of the universe has purchased us to make us outposts of his kingdom and his grace. Only then will we truly flee from sexual sin. But what does it mean to flee from sin? It means that we must walk and radical openness and honesty about our temptations and our failures in the area of sexual sin. It means that we must walk in the light at all costs with people in our parishes, with our spouses, with our pastors. Because things left in the dark will continue to produce death, but things put in the light for Christians will be met with the power and grace of God. Fleeing from sexual sin means that we have to eliminate easy access we have to the things that we've historically been weak against. If your phone or your computer is the way through which you access sexual content, get software that monitors your internet use. Block Safari on your phone. Get rid of it altogether if you must, but flee it. If relationships that lead are what lead you into crossing physical boundaries in those relationships, in those relationships in a desire to grow in holiness and affection for God, in those relationships out of love for yourself and in those relationships out of love for that partner. If you have an addiction, walk in the light and be honest. Boast in the grace and power of Christ and seek counseling and visit a Christian recovery group. See, ultimately fleeing is difficult because we want to tempt our temptations. We, like the rat, really want to be in the room where the cheese is. And even though we know that there's a trap there, we often think that we'll have the willpower to resist it. Don't be so proud, Christian. Because even if your heart is beginning to well up with joy in the grace that God has for you, even if you're feeling empowered this morning in the fact that God has taken up residence in your body, 
You're just not going to wake up tomorrow with completely different desires. For single Christians in the room, I know that this can feel particularly daunting and painful and hard. But take heart. Take heart. Because we must stay out of those places. We must go to great lengths to offer ourselves as sacrifices to God. Christians, we have to believe that God's plan for sexuality is better than our own plan. We have to trust that the intimately wise and loving God of the universe designed sex to operate the way it does for our good and for our joy out of love. We must believe that in obedience that there is a peaceful fruit of righteousness. And remember well that in our sin, we only experience guilt and shame and self-pity. Personally, I find it helpful to remember the Beatitudes from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. When I'm faced with temptation, I call myself to remember that I'm weak and desperate for God's help. In those moments, I find my spirit to be particularly poor, even more so in a moment that I don't resist temptation. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. It's not about willpower or personal determination. It's not about living your best life now. It's about God's power and personal desperation. It's the desperate to whom God has given his kingdom. When I'm tempted or troubled by the sins from my past or trying to flee sin in the present, I'm reminded that I'm troubled ultimately because my deepest desire, because of God's grace, is for righteousness. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It isn't about being perfect or never falling back into old mindsets or old behaviors. It's about a genuine desire to see God's power work in your life to make you more like his son. It's about seeing Jesus as the true bread, the bread of life and the true living water by which you will be sustained when your appetite is for other things. And finally, we have hope for the future. And I can confirm this hope as I have seen month by month, year by year, and at this point, over a decade of God changing my mind and my body and my heart to be more pure, to to desire less and less the things of sexual impurity and more and more the things of God, this promise from our Lord and Savior. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For those of us in the room who are stumbling in this morning in the midst of guilt and shame, you know well that sexual impurity blinds us from the things of God. It's why in a moment after indulging in whatever our particular temptation is, we find ourselves in a haze, moping throughout the day or the week, feeling disconnected from God and from the good things that he's given us. But believe the words of your Lord, that as God purifies your heart over weeks and days and months and years, 
that we will see him more clearly. That we will see him more clearly and that we'll gaze upon his beauty that will be far more desirable than any of our sexual desires. And in those moments, we will have more power to trust in his spirit, which has taken up residence within us to guide us into worship and away from sin. The question this morning is not, will you commit to abstinence and purity and the hard work of doing better? The questions are these. Will you surrender and admit that you are weak and that your heart wanders and will you give those things over to Jesus? Will you believe that your body has been redeemed through his body? And will you trust in his power reigning in your body to lead you into deeper worship, deeper holiness, deeper joy, for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. Father, would you use your spirit within us to purify us? On account of Jesus' blood, would you wash away our guilt and shame? And on account of his resurrection, would you fill us with joy and hope and encouragement? I pray that you would make us lowly and humble in spirit, that we might be able to access your power rather than seek to use what little power we have. Purify your church for your glory, for the good of not only those in this room, but for the good of this city that when we're poor in spirit, that when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and that when we're pure in heart, that we will be more and more a church that is faithful and dedicated to seeing people redeemed, not only in their souls, but in their bodies as well. We beg of you for your grace, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.